This is a Federal News Network podcast. If the U.S. military's modernizing efforts don't go faster than its aging process, the country's got a big problem. Yet that's exactly what's happening, according to my next guest. Robert McDonald is a retired CIA officer and former professor of national security at the National War College, and he joins me now. Mr. McDonald, good to have you on. Yes, thank you very much. And you have posited the thesis that, at least in the space area and the Air Force area, the acquisition process is a big impediment to modernizing. Why don't we begin, though, back a step and talk about what you see as the major threats and what the military sees as the big threats that they need more agile acquisition to take on? Well, right now, it seems that China is an emerging and growing threat. It clearly has focused its attention on becoming a dominant space power, a dominant military power, and it clearly has the intent to displace the United States as being the primary space organization. Obviously, if you look at the South China Sea, it's intimidating all the claimants that believe that they hold certain territory. China says no it's theirs. China is even pressuring Japan over contested areas in the East China Sea. And if you look at the expectations of the intelligence community, it sees China building a space station within the next year or two. So it clearly is a growing threat, and its work with hyperspectral weapons is quite frightening in that these are much more difficult to identify warning becomes a problem. Their tests seem to be quite effective. So on the one hand, you have this growing national security threat from China. On the other hand, there's a question of does the U.S. acquisition system position itself to move quickly? And you need to move quickly when there is this kind of growing threat. The GAO has shown that there are serious problems. Right. Well, let me ask you this before we get into the acquisition question. What does space capability give China that we don't have or how does it enhance their ability? They've got fighters and they've got jets and carriers similar to our platforms. What about space gives people an advantage these days? Or is it that they can just use space to shoot down our satellites? Probably all of the above. What appears to be somewhat frightening is that China is integrating all of its space services, the satellite reconnaissance, navigation, communication, into its weapons and command and control system. And this would ultimately erode the U.S. military information advantage. And that advantage is necessary for hyperspectral weapons because one of the most promising way to detect and manage that threat is through space. And if our space capability is diminished, that diminishes our ability to anticipate and counter hyperspectral weapons systems. Plus, we're behind on the hyperspectral weapons themselves, too, aren't we? Yes, yes. That seems to be a problem. Last year, there were U.S. tests with failure, and it seems that then that effort is not moving as quickly or as fast as it should. 
We're speaking with Robert McDonald. He's a senior CIA officer, retired, and former professor of national security at the National War College. So let's get into the idea of acquisition as enabling some of these capabilities to come into the U.S. faster than they would otherwise. You've laid out seven basic tenets that seem pretty simple on the face of them to reform acquisition, especially in the Air Force and the Space Force, which you say are you know, the uh, point services on some of this effort we need. Yeah, on the surface, the seven tenants seem to be very simple and very obvious. Often the obvious is something that is not obvious until it's pointed out. The seven tenants are identify the threat and objectives to overcome the threat, establish short timelines, ensure funding and staffing is adequate and stable. Stable is an important factor there. Another key thing is, number four, the breakaway teams. They need to be small, streamlined, and collaborative. The fifth tenet is employ experienced experts. And in the Cold War period we studied, they recruited systems engineers and program managements with extended experience. And then another key factor is draw on the latest advances in technology. There's a lot of technology out there take advantage in in building on it. For example, the first reconnaissance satellite adapted ICBM technology for its launch. It adapted airborne balloon recovery to recover film capsules coming back from space. So the technology is there. What we found is by taking advantage of it, you can move ahead much more quickly. And then one of the really key ones is number seven, avoid the bureaucratic sludge. So those seven principles worked very effectively in the early Cold War days to get the U.S. into space. As uh, many will recall, Sputnik was from Russia, the Soviet Union at the time, was the first satellite in space. The Americans said that they were behind, they would never catch up. By the application of the seven tenants, within months, we were there. That's the surprise, is how quickly we were able to employ the seven tenants and move forward. Well, let me ask you this. There is increased use of other transactional authorities, which buys you prototypes. There are all of these defense innovation units, AFWorks, this works, that works, lots of programs and offices being stood up to or having been stood up to try to get this velocity going. How come they haven't produced the results needed? I don't know, but I would suspect that all of the seven tenants may not have been employed. One of the key is the breakaway team, which allows you to get out of the bureaucratic overhang and sludge. The other thing is that you have to encourage risk-taking, and you have to permit and encourage failure. Failure is absolutely essential in working in a new domain if you're going to find new answers. And when the United States was trying to develop its first reconnaissance satellite, it had 12 failures, dramatic failures. Oftentimes the booster would explode on launch. At times the recovery would fail. At times the orbit would be off. 12 failures. It was on number 13 that there was the first success. Failure was permitted, but each failure was a learning experience. I'm not sure that that's permitted today. If you fail, 
you stop and you're fired and somebody replaces you. Yes, and also that stable funding from Congress, which also can be a pretty ham-fisted overseer to these failures. You've got a kind of a dual issue there up on Capitol Hill, don't you? Yeah, you absolutely need funding to the level necessary to meet the objective, and it needs to be stable over time, just as the staffing needs to be stable over time. You need experts, you need money, and you need failure. We found that the seven tenants created that kind of environment where there was stable funding, where there were opportunities to make mistakes and be creative. And I just wanted to ask you this sort of philosophically. Do you believe that we're still a serious nation? Because a lot of military planners, a lot of writers such as yourself mention, let's get Silicon Valley in here. And there's always talk about Silicon Valley. We don't make silicon much anymore, and that's a big problem we're trying to play catch-up on. So Silicon Valley has become Software Valley, and so much of the software coming out of Silicon Valley seems to be designed to get people to look at stupid things so they can be sold an ad. Yeah, obviously this era is different from the Cold War era, and it's going to be a much bigger challenge to apply the seven tenants for the various reasons that you pointed out. But if we can permit people to break away in a team with the brightest and the best, give them stable funding, and allow them to work on the project for more than 18 months, we can do it. We did it before. When uh, Sputnik was launched, there was belief that the Soviets were well ahead of us in their space technology and in their weapon system. And within months, that turned out to not be the case. With regard to the U-2, eight months it was deployed. With regard to the first spy satellite, 30 months to develop it. So we did it in the past. We can do it again. And I believe applying the seven tenants and creating the environment for risk-taking and creativity will get us there. Robert McDonald is a retired CIA officer and former professor of national security at the National War College. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Glad to do it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Winter season is here, and Discount Tire wants you to stay safe on the road. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, let's get you taken care of. Let's get you taken care of. 